It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. In this episode, we will explore the life and career of an amazing professional in the world of jazz. I will reveal the name of this accomplished and renowned jazz educator in just a moment. But first, let me share with you an audio sampling of this person who also happens to be an outstanding vocalist and performer. Lenora Zenzeli Helm is a jazz vocalist. She's a vocal musician composer. She's a coach, a lyricist, an educator with seven solo recordings to her credit. And she also has her own recording company and publishing company and an extensive discography with some of the biggest names in jazz. Lenora, thank you for joining us here on All That's Jazz. It's my pleasure, Alan. Thank you for having me. In preparing for this conversation, I reviewed a lot of your biography, which has a rather extensive body of work uh, as a vocal jazz musician, a composer, the publisher listing that you have, and your deep, rich life as an educator. My first question to you is, when's the last time you actually had some sleep? (laughs) You know, that's a very interesting question. Usually, um, my husband says, you know, when I ask him that, he says, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. So I won't say that because yeah. that's, a, that's a little on the other side of what I would like to say. But, you know, there's, there's so many things to do. And so I don't think about, I get sleep. I have the gift of sleep, actually. Uh, I can sleep like a log, but there are a lot of irons in the fire, and I just want that dash to count. So your, your background, truly, though, is very, very impressive, and it is exhaustingly long. I mean, it truly is. Uh, you are a very accomplished uh, professional, uh, a musician, an educator, and I'm sure our listeners will understand as we go through some of our discussion with you today that you, you really stay very, very busy. Where do you yeah. find the energy and the time? I'm inspired. The things that I want to accomplish while I'm still breathing and and God grants me the gift of life, there are a lot of things to accomplish. And so I I focus and and thank you for that. That's a very nice compliment. I really want to make the things that I have the privilege of doing count, especially for, I guess, the last 20 years that I've been an educator and the last 15 
here at, at the university level, I meet so many young musicians whose lives can be changed if they have even half of the information that I was given and mentors who took the time with me. So there's a lot to do. And I'm really grateful I've been able to do so many things. Well, you were born on the south side of Chicago and born into a musical family. Explain that musical family, if you would. So my younger brother, Reggie, Reginald Helm, he plays saxophone and he goes by Raja and he lives in Chicago and he uh, performs with his, his group and he writes more on the smooth jazz side. I started playing trumpet as my first instrument because my older brother, Casey, played trumpet in, in high school. And I would hear him practicing his trumpet and I thought, I wanna play trumpet. And I first started playing trumpet uh, in third grade, but the band at my third grade school couldn't, they couldn't afford, the school district couldn't afford to keep that band going. My mother played piano and organ and my father played African drums. Uh, so there was always music around. My older sister sang in the choir in high school. And so there, everyone kind of touched in music. I think I was the only uh, crazy one that made it a career. Was jazz anywhere threaded through this family of yours? Oh, absolutely. Because growing up in Chicago, the radio was the kind of radio that had every style of music. So I would hear gospel and R&B and jazz all mixed up together uh, on the radio. But also my dad played jazz music at home. I would sit on his lap while he painted he was a, a painter, a visual artist, and he would play jazz music. So jazz was the, my dad's music and probably it just absorbed. By the time I was 15, I, jazz was my choice. So yeah, I, I, I was introduced, my, my father would play Nina Simone and Booker T of the MGs and uh, he, Dave Brubeck, he would play uh, Stan Getz, he would play Ella Fitzgerald, he, you know, I heard everything. At a younger age, when you were developing into the artist that you are today, were there influences by any specific artist or musician that really spurred you on? Oh, sure. I think I fell in love first with Billie Holiday and John Coltrane, kind of together at the same time. I was in a high school band called Creation, and after we would practice every Saturday and Sunday, and after band rehearsal, the guys would play jazz uh, records and they played Billie Holiday's Lady in Satin. And they would kind of alternate with that and John Coltrane's Ballads album. And so that's when I was like really bit by the bug, you know, about jazz music. But I listened to everything. I would come home from school, do my homework real fast and just sing along with the records of Gladys Knight and. Carly Simon, Joni Mitchell, uh, Etta James, just so many people. So the influences of female jazz vocalists was very strong. Uh, and by the time I got to college, Sarah Vaughn was someone who was on constant play. I had all of her records and I played Sarah Vaughn's records so much that my college roommate threatened to throw my records out. She said, if you play another Sarah Vaughn record, I'm throwing them away. <laughs> You know, that's funny. I, I've got a similar story because we did a uh, an interview with uh, Elaine Hayes, who is the author of uh, The Queen of Bebop, 
and she was talking about her development and, and love and influence by uh, Sarah Vaughan. But we had a, a border in our home, and we took her in to get her back on her feet kind of thing. But along with her came a whole record collection, central wow. of which was Sarah Vaughan, and she played Sarah Vaughan every single day to the point where oh. my father would say, is that the only song or the <laughs> only artist that you like? Isn't there someone else? <laughs> there's no one else. <laughs> For you know, a long time, I thought there's no one else. I mean, I would listen to Miles Davis and, you know, all the instrumentalists, all the requisite listening that you have to do when you're developing as a jazz musician. But my, my go-to was Sarah Vaughan. And then later I started to incorporate listening to Betty Carter and Carmen McRae as my, my taste developed, as my palate developed. And, and, and pretty much as I wanted to learn and grow, John Hendricks. So, but Sarah Vaughan is the, I listen to her so much when I'm performing a song, I have to make sure I don't do her version of it. That's how much I listen to her music. Have you ever been compared to her? No. There have been comparisons of very early articles or reviews by jazz writers that I sound like, that I've done my homework, but I, I sound like myself, but I've done my homework in having this, a jazz grammar. One of the writers that that, that wrote something that I thought, wow, that's the first time someone kind of gets me. It was Lloyd Sachs, who writes for the Sun-Times, Chicago Sun-Times. And bless him, he just, he said, I, I have a, a love of pop and, and, and soul music that you can hear in my light against dark phrasing without breaking a very stringent love for jazz grammar. And which is true. I mean, I grew up listening to all kinds of music and I try to incorporate what I feel is a respect for the music of, of black music, but continuing to have a jazz grammar. So, you know, there's blues in it and, and all of that stuff. Later, I, I learned to sing some classical repertoire, but I'm not, I won't call myself classically trained, but I've learned to use my upper register. register. So some people would compare me to having a range like uh, a Saravon, because I do have a, a, a big range, but not particularly saying, oh, she sounds like this artist or that, which I'm happy for. So as you were uh, growing up and uh, moving through uh, your school years, if you will, I guess it sounds like jazz was the motivator to continue toward higher education to study something in the jazz uh, vein? For sure. I, when I decided at age of 14 that I wanted to be a jazz musician, I was interested in composing and arranging. I definitely wanted to perform, but I was focused on what I didn't know. And I, and I learned that the composition and arranging skill sets would be most enhanced if I took a course of study in jazz. That it would, it would lend itself to a more well-rounded ability to play commercial and to perform commercial music or non-classical music. 
So for me, jazz was the pinnacle. It was, it required a skill at improvisation and it required to really study at the highest level of harmony, improvisation, the composition, composition devices and all of the composers that I really loved when I was young and didn't know better, you know, the, the uh, Earth, Wind and Fire producer, Charles Stephanie, Quincy Jones, they were jazz musicians. And so I said, well, that's what I want to be able to do. And then as I got into jazz, uh, once I attended Berkeley College of Music, I learned of all of the jazz composers and fell in love with Wayne Shorter and, and fell in love with just, you know, that whole realm. So that led me into higher education for sure. You obviously did well with it because you became the first African-American woman to receive a B.A. in film, music, composition, and voice at Berkeley. Correct. For first vocal. There was another woman who was in the program at that time, but she was an instrumentalist. So I was the first vocal Bachelor of Music degree, film scoring degree recipient from Berkeley College of Music. That was hard work. It was hard work. It was a commitment. I finished a four-year program in three years. I, I went straight through the summers. And uh, you, I didn't get a lot of time to hang out and do stuff. So I was always doing some kind of an arrangement, writing and really pushing to the, to the limit. So you obviously pursued it even further by getting your master's degree from East Carolina University. And that was uh, jazz performance and voice for your master's. Correct. But you know what, Alan, I didn't do it right back to back. Because when I finished my degree at Berkeley, I was like, I'm done. That was so much work. And I stayed in Boston a little while longer after I graduated working for a booking agency. I had a wedding band. And I um, would do four weddings a weekend and do supper clubs and all that to kind of like get my nerve up to move to New York City. And once I got to New York City, I spent 20 years in New York working in, in jazz clubs, anywhere where I could be hired, any kind of restaurant, doing, doing what you have to do, paying your dues. And after about 20 years in New York City, and after I started making recordings, I then uh, was invited to go and teach at North Carolina Central University, where I am now, to help develop their vocal jazz component of the jazz studies program. And because I was in the academic environment, my, the chair of the department said she was a woman. And she said, she was on a mentoring tip. She said, if I were you, I would get my master's degree. I was like, I don't want my master's degree. I'm like in my late, my forties, I'm not interested in another degree. I've been all over the world. I've had these, you know, whatever the arrogance or ignorance was a combination. And then eventually I said, you know what? She's right. I got put on tenure track and you have to start ticking off those boxes. So then I didn't start to, I had finished my degree in Berkeley in the 80s. So by the time I got to teaching in higher ed, I started my master's degree in 2008. So that was a big stretch of time later. So where in all of that mix uh, were you actually in a performance mode where you were the, the solo performer uh, where where does that fall in the chronology of uh, of Lenora? So that was from like 1987 to 2007. 2005 is when I started teaching at NCCU. 
So it was a good 17, 18 years of straight performing. Uh, I first uh, would do some background vocals for R&B and pop jazz acts like Michael Franks and, and uh, Freddie Jackson. I had a stint as a U.S. jazz ambassador for the State Department and went to Southeastern Africa, to Uganda, Malawi, Johannesburg, Kenya, and, uh, and Cape Town. And then back and forth to New York, I would travel and, and tour and perform and do those kinds of tours. And then I would come back and, and do gigs around all the country, jazz festivals. So I had a good stint before I kind of buckled down as a, as a professor at a university with just straight performing. And I'm really glad I did that because, you know, the, the axiom that those who teach can't perform is just not true. In, especially in the realm of jazz, you have to have that that mileage. You need that mileage, that time of performing on the stage so that when you're talking to your students and trying to teach them the performance aspect, it's not textbook. It's not theoretical. Theoretical. You have to have been a practitioner to know. And then I, I take my students with me. I still tour and perform a lot because one of the great things about being a performer as a professor, in order to advance in your academic career, you have to have a viable performance career or you really don't advance. You can't make the um, promotion to uh, tenure or some of the uh, higher level, the high, higher level classifications from lecturer. You know, I started as an adjunct professor and then moved to lecturer, then moved to instructor, and then moved to assistant professor. And I recently earned tenure and associate professorship. The part about performing is so necessary. And I, and I teach my students that it's, it doesn't mean a hill of beans if you have a doctorate or an academic degree in jazz if you really can't perform on stage. So you're still pursuing yet more of a recognition, you are still studying or close to receiving your doctorate? I am. Oh, boy, I'm so excited about that. Alan, I cannot tell you. I'm like, I could smell it. I'm inches away. So I'm in the middle of uh, my dissertation edits. And I hope by the end of the summer that I am actually defending my dissertation. And it's about intercultural competence in jazz. I have uh, global classrooms that I helped to develop curriculum for, for my, my university. And I'm partnering with uh, a school in Aarhus, Denmark, Royal Academy of Music, and University of Pretoria, jazz studies program there. And so our three, co the cohort of students interact, and I was just observing and looking and studying a case of intercultural competence how jazz could or could not instigate students to develop intercultural competence skills. And boy, in the days and times now, don't we need that? Indeed. So mm -hmm. obviously uh, in your performance mode, you've traveled to a number of international countries, and I'm sure that develops uh, or further enhances your cultural sensitivity. And for example, I, I think you released a number of albums uh, in Japan. There is a group that I performed with in the early 90s in New York. We were based out of New York called Sepia. And we were more of a neo-soul, smooth jazz kind of a group before neo-soul was a thing. 
mm-hmm. and we were just about to get signed by Blue Note Records. They were looking at us and we were talking to them and it kind of didn't work out. So, but we did travel to Japan and we recorded uh, for a Japanese label. We had an independent label, then we re-released it for a Japanese label. And then I worked with Keiko Matsui and background vocals and things like that. How much of your work was done in the background now that you mentioned that? Obviously you have works to your credit as a solo artist, but what about background vocals? Yeah, you know, in New York, I did have an opportunity to do a good amount of background vocal work. And that was when you, you still got paid residuals for every recording, background vo- vocal recording that you did and commercials that you did. I did a, a Campbell Soup commercial where I sang mm, good, you know, in harmony and got like tens of thousands of dollars for that one commercial. So I was like, yeah, this is good. <laughs> I could do this. So that was a period in time when that field was really popping. And I was not a, one of the A-list background vocal singers because I was doing a lot of my own performing and touring as a jazz solo artist. But it would come up and and I would get called by my friends who were in that field to say, hey, you want to hop on this record or you want to hop on this session? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was... I was grateful for that experience because I ended up teaching a class on that in my my current university so that young people would know how to do that skill. It's an entirely separate set of skills to to, uh, record background vocals for an artist. It's funny because uh, I've talked to a number of people through the course of our uh, podcast uh, that have had a background that included work as a backup singer, if you will, one of which was uh, Catherine Russell, who is uh, an outstanding uh, vocalist. Yes, and yes. We've worked together before in that setting. Oh, good. So, so uh, then you know she worked with David Bowie, and that yeah. was a huge surprise to me. She's the cream of the crop. I mean, she was the A-list first call singer in background music, in background vocals. And, and that's great. I mean, that says a lot. So when, when a, a solo artist is out there and they need that strong element and someone's on that A-list, that's a good place to be. Oh, yeah. That was, and she was the best. And, she, and she's so sweet. I love her. Yeah. Tell me, going toward your musical career, you've put out seven albums, if I'm correct on that the latest of which uh, is one that just recently came for the love of Big Band, but it was nine years separation from the previous recording to this one for the love of Big Band. Wow. And when it came to the point where I I looked up and said, when's the last time you did a record? When I had to ask myself, when's the last time you recorded? I thought, okay, that's it. So I talked to my husband and I said, you know, I want to do a recording. He says, okay. He's so supportive, but he's very much someone who lets me do my own projects. And so I kind of put together a band to see like an exploratory idea. I had just come back from six weeks in South Africa and did a recording uh, at a jazz club here called Sharp Nine Gallery with a big band. And we, we, we crunched like 25 people on this little stage, but it felt so good and it was so much fun. And I thought, you know, I want to do a record. Yeah, let's go ahead and do this record. And we put together a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter. Hmm. I said, okay, you know what? 
If I raise the money, I'll do the record. If I don't raise the money, then just I'll can this idea. And I raise the money. And so about uh, four or five months later, we got everything in place and we did it live in a, a church here in Haiti in the old Black Wall Street district. Haiti Heritage Center, a live church where the woods, all wood floors, all wood, everything, stained glass windows, the, just incredible acoustics. Branford Marsalis has recorded a few records there. And I recorded a previous record there, Chronicles of a Butterfly. Mm-hmm. And But that was just with a trio with Mogul Miller and um, Doug Womble on guitar and Neil Kane on bass. But this was a 25-piece <laughs> big band with a choir and everything. So it was a big, big deal. And so For the Love of Big Band is my first foray into working with a big band. And I think this is going to be the vehicle I use for the next next several years, Tribe Jazz Orchestra. So where did that hookup come from? Uh, were you familiar with them or is this something that you assembled? I assembled it. It's, it's my band. Um, musicians, I handpicked every single one of them. <laughs> I wanted to now move into working as a composer and as an arranger, going back to my roots from my film scoring degree. Although, because the project ended up being such a mammoth undertaking, I got a guest conductor to uh, direct the band for me. I picked the songs, I picked the uh, arrangers, I worked to arrange a couple of things with some of the arrangers and co-arrange, but it's my band. And when you put this recording together, the tracks that you chose or the, the music that you decided to pick for each of the representations of the music that you had in your heart or mind, it included a, a couple that I, I found very interesting. One, of course, being Nina Simone's uh, Blues for Mama. Yeah. How, how, how did you make that choice? You know, I love Nina Simone. And I've on a couple of previous records, I've recorded her music. I've recorded uh, I Want a Little Sugar in My Bowl. I want a little sugar in my bowl I want a little sweetness down in my soul I could stand some loving ooh so bad I feel funny I feel so sad I want a little steam on my clothes Maybe I can fix things up so they'll go What's the matter daddy Come on save my soul I need some sugar in my bowl On Chronicles of a Butterfly, and I recorded No Images, uh, which is her music to a Warren Cuny poem on voice paintings. So I always look for her music, and I always look for Duke Ellington's music on every record. I have one or the other of their their compositions. And so when I listen to her sing Blues for Mama, I just imagine being back in Chicago with my family, my aunts, listening and, you know, in, in the kitchen where my aunts, my mother have four sisters and, and listening to them talk and chew the fat with each other and gossip a little and, and talk, you know, everything. 
about everything. So I just imagine those women sitting on the porch and just talking about another woman. feeling good the spreading dirty rumors around the neighborhood they say you're mean and evil don't know what to do that's the reason that it's gone and left you black and blue hey I said, man, you know, I, I talked to Brian Horton, who arranged that one, and I gave him my idea of what I wanted. And he nailed it because I wanted it to feel like big and raunchy and sexy and fun, but um, intimate at the same time. So somewhere through all of the tracks that you put on this album, you also decided to shake things up a little bit with another Nina Simone tune. Do you oh want to yeah, you're talking that about one? Mississippi. Mississippi, <laughs> goddamn. Mississippi, goddamn, right? Because you know, look at what's going on, Alan. I mean, why is it that something that she wrote in the '60s is relevant in 2020? In 2020, what is that about? So I listened to her version and I said, well, let, there's um, a way to make this a little more updated, unfortunately. And even before, up to the moment that we recorded it, some of the stories that were unfolding in the news media were still, were relevant. And I thought, okay, this is timeless, unfortunately. So she was a high priestess of soul. Mm -hmm. she, she was a soothsayer and a griot in some of the lyrics that she wrote. I had the privilege of working with her, her daughter, Lisa Simone, and Tribe Jazz Orchestra accompanied Lisa Simone on some performances last August uh, for North Carolina Arts Council, as well as for an arts organization here called Kids Notes recently. So my, my, my big band, Tribe Jazz Orchestra, will work for me and sometimes I will uh, lead the band and direct the band as they perform for other artists. When you were doing this particular song, were you feeling the emotion and maybe the, the anger or what, what sort of thing was going through your mind or in your heart? Because this tune, if uh, people don't know, was Nina Simone's response to the murder of Medgar Evers in Mississippi. That's a pretty impactful event in black lives. Not only that, but just in the world in general. Yeah, because it, I, I feel like an artist's job, an obligation is to speak to what's going on in present day life. To inspire and to entertain, but also to educate. And, and to be, a, a, you know, I won't say a spokesperson because that's kind of lofty. But you talk about what you see and what you feel and what your lived experience is. For her lived experience at that time, for Medgar Evers to be 
be killed and for the bombings that were happening, the lynchings that were happening. You couldn't be an artist and not talk about that, just like right now. Uh, Jimmy Green, saxophonist Jimmy Green, whose daughter was killed in Sandy Hook. I mean, he's a friend of mine. He's a, a colleague. And so um, that, that lives in you, that lives in your DNA. At the time when uh, I was teaching uh, this global class and the Charlottesville incident happened. And so there kept being these incidences where I had to explain to young people, to my grandchildren, to my students, what it is to be a black person and to live and worry about if you're going to come home that evening We're, and look at, at, at images in the media where uh, your life is in danger just because of the color of your skin. How could you not sing about that? And so jazz has always been a mirror of life. It, it started as an opportunity for musicians to be able to speak and, and express themselves when they weren't accepted. It's always been that kind of art form. And so the, I, you, I can't make a record. If you look at every single recording I've done, I'm always speaking to, I did a song called Ripples which was lyrics I wrote to a Jason Moran recording. And the content of the lyrics was about when RFK, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. went to apartheid, to, to, to South Africa. And so I'm always speaking about that. My dad taught me that. My, my father taught me that you are supposed to pay attention to what's happening around you. And if you are an artist, you have an obligation to, to sing about that. But that's just the trouble Desegregation Mass incarceration Immigration Marriage equality Police brutality Why don't you see it? Why don't you know it? I don't know, I don't know You don't have to live next to me Everybody knows about Mississippi Everybody knows about Charlottesville Everybody knows about Mississippi I, I thought about it long and hard before I added Mississippi And then I said, oh yeah, I have to add it And, and even after, even when we were um, doing the mixing, choosing the takes because we recorded everything live and choosing the takes. When Mississippi came up, we were just in that whole political realm where there was a primary going on and, some, and some, one of the people running for one of the offices was saying some insane racist things. So by the, by the time the record was like printed, yeah, Mississippi goddamn was right on point. Obviously, it, it has a message, uh, and it, I, I like what you say about the fact that, as your dad pointed out, that you have a responsibility to make a statement, to present a message through your music. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think you're kind of missing the point, uh, especially uh, as a jazz artist, more importantly, as a black artist. I, I'm sure that that's uh, still deeply rooted uh, in you because I, one of the videos that uh, my wife and I watched uh, was your Sunday walk video where you talked about Black Lives Matter. 
And I, I can't tell you, honestly, uh, again, by the end of that uh, 11 minutes, it, it's so compelling. We were in tears because you made such wonderful and valid points about what needs to be done. Right. It really is. Thank you for that. 11 minutes. I didn't realize I talked that long. But, you know, Alan, the things that are in front of us, we have the opportunity to link arms together and eradicate the things that we don't want our children's children to experience. What's the axiom? One generation plants the seed and the other gets the shade. It's ridiculous that I have to explain that to or have that conversation with a student or a young person or a grandchild. And so now is the time for us to link arms. It doesn't matter if some of us didn't know what was going on or I think Jane Elliott, she's a race educator, says it perfectly. Would you change places with me? Whenever someone's saying, oh, well, there's this and that aspect of it that's going on. Or what about black on black crime? Or what about, what about this or what about that? And I say, squash all of that. In this society right now, would you change places with a black person? And if your answer is no, then it's, you know what goes on. And if you're not helping to change it, you're helping to keep it to persist. That's a little in your face, but that's what it takes right now. And so we have to link arms and, and say no more, not on my watch, not on my watch. And so I, I don't know, I, I, there's so much to say. Um, and I try to put that in my music and in my lyrics. There's so much to do uh, as artists. There's, this is a vibrant time we're living through history. So there's so much to, to give and like that dash in between the day you were born and the day you die. I just, I just wanna die empty. I mean, that sounds cliche-ish, but I mean it. No, so, that, that, yeah. that says a lot about you, that you're willing to give that much. And it's too bad there aren't enough people in this world that do that to where you empty it out and leave the world as an empty vessel. <laughs> I think there are, but we don't know about them. Mm. Like I, I was in some places. One of the reasons I started my online classes, vocal jazz, summer camp, and teach with ease online, and now the teaching artist certificate program at NCCU I, I started, because I would travel to countries and I would meet incredibly talented young people. I met a group of, of singers in, in South Africa, and some of them were so talented, but they can't afford, some of them couldn't afford college or couldn't afford to travel to the United States to learn from some of the teachers that they would like to learn from. So I kept thinking, how do I create access and resources for them? So in 2013, I started this online platform. Well, I struggled getting that off the ground because in 2013, people weren't thinking about doing things online, but here's COVID and we're at home and we're online. And I was like, wow, it took all that time. <laughs> for my vision to have a place where now it's common. To your point, there are a lot of people who are very talented and, and as emphatic and passionate, but we just don't hear about them all the time. The internet helps that, helps to change that. I think after this time, artists now have a different outlook about how they can share their music and their, and their work with audiences and how the internet is that great divide. 
it, it's, it's that flatliner where you don't have that separation because now it's a, people, they have their phone, right? It used to be if you didn't have broadband in the country that you lived, you couldn't have access, but they have their phone and everyone can get on their phone. So mm-hmm. I love that. I love that it allows us to remove the barriers of access that limit people who don't have the same privilege as others. So in closing then, Lenora, let's do just like a a great song of message, which travels on a journey from shadow into light. And let's talk about the light uh, at this point. And and that's a perfect jump off point because you mentioned uh, the uh, virtual reality of our lives these days. You're doing online courses and uh, these are designed for artists and all types of creative people uh, with a varying level of skills. Can you talk just very briefly about that? Sure. Um, thank you for adding that. Vocal Jazz Summer Camp is a five-day camp that allows people from anywhere to participate in a virtual camp. And I'll have Lauren Kinnan and Marlon Saunders, who works with Stevie Wonder and Bobby McFerrin and uh, Carrie Marsh. I have all these great vocal jazz names who will, anyone who participates in this, vocaljazzsummercamp.com, they will have an access to something that they probably would have never been able to afford on their own. Then there, um, lenorahelm.online is where all of these classes are. And I wanted to, to make sure that people who were, if maybe you were a classical singer or you're a vocal teacher and you don't know what you don't know about jazz or you, you don't want to be a jazz singer, but studying vocal jazz helps you learn a high level of musicianship. It helps develop your ear and it helps develop your, your understanding of what to do in the moment. Um, so I said, this is, you know, vocal jazz for all because it really does help you improve your musicianship. And I think that's my, my role. My role is to bring jazz to a very wide audience, whether you like my recordings or whether you uh, like the education products and aspects, uh, the resources that I offer, that's my goal. I want as many people to be able to experience jazz as possible. So let me give you that opportunity then and present to our listeners a way to get to you. What's the best way to learn about those courses? And more importantly, learn more about you, your music, and all the work that you're devoted, committed, and passionate about. Thank you, Alan. On my website, Lenora Helm. It doesn't have my Zenzale in the middle. So it's really easy. L-E-N-O-R-A-H-E-L-M.com. It's been a wonderful conversation with you. You are truly a delightful, charming individual. You're intelligent. You're interesting beyond belief. And I applaud you for all of your accomplishments. And I appreciate this time with you today. Thank you so much, Alan. That was very sweet to say. I appreciate it. But I love coming on talking to you. You've had such great guests on. It was an honor to be asked. So thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with vocal jazz musician, composer, publisher, and educator, Lenora Zenzele-Helm. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Please join us for our next episode featuring the Spanish Harlem Orchestra with artistic director Oscar Hernandez. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the app you used to listen to us. We are available on Podbean, 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app. Also Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.